Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Have you heard of Dr. Soph? Well, she's a registered clinical psychologist who I have had the pleasure of following on Instagram for years now, and I just adore her accessible, relatable approach to mental health and anxiety in particular. Known for breaking down and sharing the information usually kept behind therapy room doors, Dr. Soph has much to my delight just published her first book, and it's called A Manual for Being Human. Quite literally, it is a manual. What I love most about this book is how practical it is. It's like therapy in a book, a proactive, easy to follow toolkit for anyone at all wishing to gain a better understanding of their mental health. It's full of prompts, go-to techniques and digestible explanations for so many mental health questions that we have. This book will help people to better understand themselves and you know by now, listening to me, just how important it is to start by understanding what we're dealing with before setting about implementing any changes. A Manual for Being Human by Dr. Soph is available now on audiobook, ebook, and good old fashioned hardbacks too. Dr. Soph, I'm so thrilled to be joined by you this morning on Owning It the Anxiety podcast. I've actually wanted to have you on the series for so long. I am quite the fangirl of yours, so thank you for joining me. Oh my word, thank you so much for inviting me and equal fangirl in in the return direction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I have just adored hoovering up your Instagram content over the last few years. I love how much you demystify the world of therapy and clinical psychology and you'd bring it down to earth and you make everything very approachable and digestible and your little quotes just stop me in my tracks so often and give me you know a chance to reset so I was so excited when I got the email that you had amidst all of the things that you do you had found the time to publish your first book so massive congratulations on that thank you thank you yes I still can't quite believe it's real 
It's very real and it is called A Manual for Being Human. Uh, I, I cannot wait to get stuck into it. So we're going to talk about that um, today and we're obviously going to drill down into anxiety as is the, the theme of, of this podcast. But I'd love to just start by if you could give our listeners a little bit of background in, into kind of how you got to where you are now. You've got such such an amazing list of, of strings to your bow. Well, um, it's funny that we're talking about anxiety today because I think very few psychologists Um, are allowed to talk about their journey into psychology. Certainly when I started uh, considering psychology, when I told people why I wanted to do it, I was told never to talk about it out loud. But luckily as a qualified doctor now, I am allowed to talk about what I wish. But basically I started having panic attacks at the age of 18 and didn't know what they were. And if you've had a panic attack, you know that they can make you feel like you're losing your mind. You're going to have a heart attack while the world is ending. Terrifying, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And so at the age of 18, I didn't know where to turn. I'd only really seen on TV mental health. um, I'd only ever seen mental health explored in terms of people being mad or bad or their life being over. Mm -hmm. So I genuinely thought I fell into one of those, those three categories. And when I did get the right support and managed to overcome my panic attacks, I just, there was no way I could go back to doing art. I just felt really like, okay, I need to learn as much as I possibly can about psychology. I need to do this for myself, but also once I've got all this information, I need to share it so that no one else has to feel the way that I did in those really dark moments where I thought life was over. I always would have assumed that anyone getting into that world would have to be coming from some place of personal experience because you need, well, I have found the most success in, in when I'm dealing with experts that when they can relate to me and they can bring their own experience to it, it's, it's so important. And I think that's, it's really essential as well to not just feel like, you know, that I have you up on this pedestal as this expert. 100%. And I think it is probably quite common that therapists have a reason they go into psychology. You know, maybe it's personal or maybe it's because a family member is someone that they want to understand. But it's interesting. So I did an undergraduate in psychology, then a master's in neuroscience, and then a doctorate in clinical psychology to become a clinical psychologist. And it was in the like preparation for the interview for the doctorate that I was told in no uncertain terms to make it quite clear that I didn't and hadn't really ever struggled and if I had it was totally now sorted like I was basically in the kind of human who never had problems which wow I don't even know if that person really exists and I no. think what's more important is we're able to say I am a human who experiences a whole range of things and sometimes I need to rely on other people to support me but most of the time I know that I can get through whatever the you know the world throws at me Humans are vulnerable. We live in emotion-filled bodies. We struggle from time to time and that's normal. <laughs> that is, that's mind-blowing. I mean, the idea that you're at the pinnacle of education to be able to help people and like they're the people who need to understand the nature of being human. That's, that's frightening. So you have, you are kind of known for, for now sharing what's usually kept behind therapy doors. Um, you, do, you do see that changing? Yes, I do. Um, I think more and more people are really humanizing psychology. I think more and more as therapists kind of emerge from behind their therapy room doors and share what they think is important, 
advice and facts about what it is to be human they're also starting to say you know and i have these struggles too i don't mean worry about me because that's the important thing right whenever i say i had panic attacks at the age of 18 i'm not i'm intentionally sharing something that shows i know what it's like to struggle but making it clear as well you don't need to worry about me because <laughs> yeah. the therapy the therapy dynamic is very it's very important that the client knows they don't have to worry about the therapist the therapist can contain whatever comes up in the session so i think it's a balance right therapists are now coming out and showing i struggle too but at the same time is maintaining this very important boundary of but i'm okay yeah yeah. Or, but at least, you know, you know what to do if you yes. have a day where you're not okay. And that's the goal for all of us is to get there. One of the quotes that I loved from, from your book is you say that if there's one reason why we're all struggling, whether it's anxiety or, or just insecurity or feeling down, it's because we don't understand ourselves and that we've been brought up to maybe misunderstand and fear the very thing that makes us us. And I'm just, I'm curious, is that for you vulnerability? Cause that for me has been a game changer is when I've like everything changed for me when I made an effort to understand before I tried to throw the kitchen sink at it. And before I tried to like just meditate and do yoga, like what am I dealing with here? What is going on here? So I, I couldn't agree more with that. And things have just changed massively since I've opened myself up to the vulnerability aspect as well. And do you mean like allowing yourself to uh, struggle or to share that you might be having a difficult time from time to time? I think so. I think there's two elements to it. I think when I first started to really struggle, you know, I was very in the much in the dark. I didn't want to know about it. And there was so much shame at the time. There was This was 2014. So no one was talking about it on social media. And the only the only moment that things changed was when I was willing to say, okay, this is where I am. This is what has led me. This is what I'm dealing with. And like, get curious about that and and get accepting of it. And then I guess in more recent years, I guess I I felt, I suppose when I wrote my first book, I felt pressure that, okay, you've written about it. Now you better have it all figured out. You better not go back there. Uh, And then I had to kind of go through more stuff of like, well, actually you're a human and really leaning into that vulnerability has been has sort of sustained me feeling well now absolutely it's so important isn't it that we don't put on this like well plaster on this brave face and knuckle you know white knuckle yeah. through our day do you think so many people are, are are just trying to treat themselves without understanding what they're dealing with oh i think a lot of people are understandably trying to pretend that they're totally fine when they're not and i suppose my quote about um we're raised to misunderstand ourselves and this is causing problems is about yes vulnerability but it's mainly about the fact i think that a lot of us have been taught from a very early age that the emotion that we're meant to strive for is happiness Mm -hmm. and that any other emotion is unacceptable to the point of dangerous actually you know if you think about i don't know how you talked about anger but for a lot of us women we were told you know, anger really isn't for us. So we try and avoid anger at all costs. And when it comes up, we then often panic, right? I don't want to feel that. This is dangerous. What if it explodes out of me? Um, I'm a good girl. I shouldn't feel those emotions. So when it comes up, we, we maybe panic or we experience something else. Or for example, let's think about anxiety. Because most of us have been taught we need to be happy and everything else is, you know, to be avoided. When anxiety first comes up and it feels so intolerable, right? Your heart is racing, um, your breathing has changed, your mind is running through everything that can go wrong. Because we don't know that those are normal experiences, part of the fight or flight response that can be understood and managed. Instead, we have this alien moment right this alien physical sensation that our brain says i don't know what it is this feels terrifying i must be in danger 
And then we try and push it away, but it keeps coming back because our brain's like, no, you can't look away from danger. <laughs> Focus on this. And suddenly that emotion that no one has told us about becomes even more terrifying than it needs to be. And often the difference between someone having one anxiety attack and going on to have many anxiety attacks is understanding, right? If you have your first panic attack and go, okay, that was absolutely terrifying, but I know that I'm safe. Even though I feel like I'm going to die, I know that this will pass. I know that I can do breathing exercises. I can do grounding exercises. I know X and Y work for me. If you do that, the next time anxiety comes up, you're like, oh, it's okay. I've got this. If you think this is danger, I'm having a heart attack, I can't cope, it is likely you'll start to fear the very experience of fear itself, and then it starts a vicious circle. So when I say people are raised misunderstanding ourselves, it's the fact that we aren't taught about the fact that there's, a, there's an array of emotions and all of them are important and all of them can be understood. And yes, some of, the, some, some of them will make us feel vulnerable, but if we could learn these things early on and be able to share openly not only what it feels like but how to manage it people would have very different lived experiences of the times that they struggle it sounds like i think for future generations is something we could tap into at a younger age and that, that will be so essential to you know learn those those very normal emotions at a school level or from from parenting but for people who are reading your book now we've all pretty much been brought up in the dark as <laughs> in terms of our emotions um, unless someone has sought out therapy and it, you know even that has been shrouded in mystery and you know so much I guess stigma around like if you're going to therapy it's because you're like oh you're really like messed up or oh, something yes yeah, so unwell something's wrong with you yeah for those of us who are there now we have to kind of backtrack and think okay well, this is you know maybe this is part of what why we're feeling the way we are and we've got to make best with where we are now and, and push forward so I want to ask you about the book and the structure of a manual for being human and I, I the, the clarity of your three-step methodology if you could tell me a bit about that okay so there's a couple of things really um one is a little anecdote which is when I was little my gran had this manual for everything it was so funny like your gravy was too greasy or you got an ink stain or there was a hole in your sock and she'd go and get this manual and it had the answer honestly to everything. I don't know what it was called. It probably wasn't called a manual. It was this like, you know, housekeeping book. And I remember thinking, she knows how to solve everything. <laughs> and then you kind of grow up, right? And there's manuals for everything. There's car manuals, there's sewing manuals. You can answer pretty much every question you have, but there aren't really manuals for being human, right? Like you can get, yes, you can get self-help books, but they're often on one very specific topic. So for example, let's say um, imposter syndrome or the inner critic or sabotage, but that's not the same as being able to understand the wide ranging things that make us us. So that's kind of one of the reasons I wrote it amongst many. But the reason it's structured the way it is, so for people who obviously haven't read it yet, it's structured in three parts. And the first part is kind of why you feel you the way you do. So how you got here. The second part is what's keeping you here. And the third part is how to move forwards. And it's structured like this, not just because that kind of makes sense, right? If you're wanting to find answers about yourself, that makes sense. It's because people come into therapy and people contact me on Instagram and my friends talk about it in this way. And I've done it too. People come to therapy saying, why do I feel the way I do? Why can't I get past it? And what am I gonna do? So the book is structured in those three exact parts. 
But it won't just tell you about one reason. It'll tell you about almost everything that I see in my clinic and in my life every day that could answer why you feel the way you do, what's keeping you here and how to move forward, no matter what you're struggling with. Obviously, people have very you know, personal circumstances, things they've been through, traumas, and then there's more wider societal things that have shaped, you know, maybe why, why we feel the way we feel. And I would love to talk about social media um, as having certainly in this day and age, a, a major impact, maybe one that we underestimate. And um, I think social media and, and social comparison for me is probably one of the things I still really struggle with. And I, I, I understand it and I know, you know, that it's important to like not compare, but it, that there's a difference between understanding and, you know, actually it changing. So I, I'd love to ask from your, from your professional expertise, like what impact is social media having on people these days? And is it more negative than it is positive? Such a good question. Um, so we know that social media use um, is linked, directly linked to um, feeling unhappy about your body, feeling anxious fear of missing out, um, low self-esteem. There are lots of direct uh, research papers, well, research papers that show a direct link between negative effects on your mental health and social media. We'll get to social comparison in a moment. However, at the same time, social media does offer a low barrier space for people to connect with the things that actually can help them thrive. Right. So, for example, think about the therapists who are now using social media to share mental health information, psychological information that normally involves you getting to a place where you're really struggling, speaking to your GP and getting on a waiting list. Now you can access bite sites nuggets of psychology the moment you need it. You have a panic attack. You can go onto Instagram and find out how to manage that or what it is. Mm-hmm. So there are clearly negatives. There are clearly positives, you know, think about the people who now can, I don't know, think about the young gay man who doesn't know anyone in their community who is also gay and they're not allowed to talk about it. They can go onto Instagram and find a community. So lots of positives. So before I dive into comparison, I just wanted to put that there, that there are so many positives about social media. The negatives. You mentioned comparison, and I think what's really interesting is we're all hyper aware that on our own Instagram feeds, we're unlikely to post something where we look a mess, where our life looks a mess. We are most likely to, even when we decide to post something authentic, such as, wow, today was terrible, you know, um, we do it in a curated way, in a way that makes us feel comfortable. So we know that we do this. But when we see other people's highlight reels, we somehow forget, don't we, that they're probably curating that in the same way as we curate our own images. So we go on there and we see all these people living these almost magazine level lives and often find ourselves lacking, which makes us feel miserable. But one thing that is particularly interesting is, I think on Instagram, and I'd be really curious to hear what you think, we have swung a little bit too far in the direction of lack of nuance. Okay, so when I first set out on Instagram, very few people were talking about psychology. So this was 2018. And now everyone is, which is fantastic. But a lot of the information that is being shared misses some of the really important details. 
So for example, let's think about comparison. Often if you read about comparison on Instagram, all you'll read is comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. And because we've all experienced comparison making us feel terrible, we read that and we're like, oh, I need to stop comparing. Why can't I stop comparing? Why do I logically need it? No, I need to not compare, but in my heart can't stop it. Mm-hmm. And that's because the message comparison is the thief of joy is lacking a lot of information. Actually, comparison is one of the ways that we <laughs> survived and thrived as a species. Right. If you think about our ancestors who lived in tribes, it would have been comparison that helped them, for example, look around the community at what skills people had, the people who were really helpful, making sure that the community survived and thrived. They'd look around, see those skills and be like, hmm, I should learn those skills or I could learn those skills or this is what I need to do in order to be really helpful with the group. Equally, they might look around and say, oh, that person's much bigger than me. I should not fight them. (laughs) So comparison helped our ancestors evolve and survive and not pick fights they couldn't win. Likewise, you and I today, when we look at, for example, people who are ahead of us in our career path or ahead of us in a personal growth goal, but slightly ahead of us, you know, not like If I look at Beyonce, I think, wow, that's incredible. But I know I'm never going to be like her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if I look at someone who's just slightly ahead of me in any part of my life and I believe "Hmm, with a little bit of work, I could do that. Our brain creates the energy and motivation we need to achieve that goal. So comparison can actually be extremely important and extremely healthy But the way it is talked about on Instagram makes us not realize that we can use it to our advantage and feeds into this, oh my word, compare and despair is the only option I have when it comes to comparing myself on Instagram. Yeah, I mean, it it all goes back to really our ancestors and, you know, our survival is our brain's primary goal. And and then it's, it's bizarre because we've leapfrogged through, you know, all these different revolutions into here we are in social media. We were never supposed to have access to this much information yeah, all this many people, right? <laughs> like, you know, if you think about our parents, they would have, what, compared themselves to the people on the street. Yeah. Their friends and family. Yeah, like keeping yeah. up with the Joneses, the phrase. Yes. And like that, uh, that, you know, there's a healthy dose of that that's helpful. You know, obviously you still want to be, yes. have your eyes on your own prize, but it's just the stream of constant curated vast amounts of people who you would not normally have access to and even for things like you know I have friends who are going through some fertility issues and they're on forums or they're they're on you know social media feeds and seeing all these people who are either having fertility issues or or getting pregnant and I'm talking about it and they're they're their perception is so much more skewed because they maybe in their tribe, they would see one person be pregnant or they'd see one person having fertility issues and think, oh, but now it's like the, the vast numbers of people are massively in, influencing their anxiety on top of what they're already dealing with because of the sheer yeah. amount of people. Yeah, I mean, you can literally compare yourself to influencer dogs now, right? Like, <laughs> we're not just, you know, that's, it's just so interesting that you... It's not just, yeah, you're not looking at, for example, the Beyonce's of the world. You could literally go on there and be like, that dog has more likes and more connections than I do. Yeah. I actually quite prefer following, you know, really massive celebrities because I, like you say, like I'm never going to even consider putting myself in that lane or comparing. So I just enjoy watching their really lavish, ridiculous lifestyles. 
but it's the people who are slightly in a similar sphere to me uh, that's where I start to feel like there was you know especially now since I've had a baby like I'm, I'm so sensitive to seeing people who physically look like they have bounced back so much quicker than I have and you know I still think I look pregnant or seeing people like really take on so many cool looking career projects and their babies maybe only a couple of months old and I'm like oh my god like I'm still trying to chase my tail so like you're you're, as your circumstance keeps changing the the I suppose the information you use to compare changes as well 100% because again think about survival think about our ancestors you start paying in more attention to the things that your brain thinks you'd need to survive or thrive right to still be an integral part of your group so um yeah what you compare yourself about will change depending on what you think is important and it's it's so interesting because actually um irrespective of what you're comparing yourself Um, to, for, and what it is that's upsetting you. What we're realizing is that, you know, we often call for more authenticity, right? So we're talking about highlight reels a little bit here, I think, you know, the people who, for example, like you say, their bodies bounce back and they've showed it, they've shown it on their Instagram or they're like bossing it in a career. You know, firstly, we don't know what they feel like behind the scenes. Um, But what we know now is that some of the data shows that, for example, with hashtag no selfie, um, sorry, hashtag no makeup selfies, you know, the things that we think we want in order to make us feel um, more like we're seeing the authentic lives of others, something like 12% of no um, hashtag no makeup selfies actually do have people wearing makeup and filtered images. So What's really difficult is it's not just that um, we're seeing these people's highly curated feeds that are feeding into our fears about who we're meant to be. It's the fact that even when we think we're looking at someone living an authentic life, (laughs) showing us the authentic version of, for example, in your case, motherhood, um, often the image is still edited. It is still filtered. It is still skewed. So, and I think actually that to me is almost more worrying, right? At least if you see someone and you know there's a huge filter on it, or you know that they've said, I'm doing this in business, but behind the scenes, you know that they're like every other new mother struggling and loving it in different ways. But if you know that, at least you can kind of logically tell yourself, I know I'm comparing myself, but also realize that there are things I'm missing here. They're a normal human. When, however, those people on Instagram start saying, this is my authentic life. This is me with no makeup on. This is me in my mess. And it's not honest when they have actually filtered it. Do you see what I mean? When they're kind of telling you it's authentic and it's not, that's where we are really struggling because we're now getting a really skewed version of what in inverted commas, normal life looks like. Yeah, it's so it's it's so dangerous in some ways if people aren't wise to that, you know, they can start to really fall victim to it and think really believe that they're falling behind in so many ways. It's obviously something we can't avoid unless you're going to just, you know, go off social media. So how would you advise someone really leverages the benefits of social comparison? Mm, Okay, so it's interesting. There's there's a number of things. Firstly, recognize social comparison is normal and is unlikely to be something you're going to stop. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, one of the things that often upsets people is, I'm an adult now, I shouldn't be thinking this, which creates a new cycle of self-criticism, right? So firstly, recognize comparison is quite normal. 
start paying attention to the things that is are making you miserable, right? So maybe it's, for example, you're fine with people like Beyonce, but you're not fine with um, looking at the mum who is doing something that you wish you were doing. Mm-hmm. And ask yourself, I suppose, okay, is it is it going to be enough for me to just remember that I'm probably looking at a curated highlight reel? Or am I, for now, going to have to stop following that account? Now, in real life, so outside of social media, when it comes to comparison, we actually often need to think about why is it I'm struggling about this? What is my insecurity and how do I work on that? Social media isn't your real life, yes? It is the place that you escape to. We can and we must curate our social media so that it doesn't make our lives more miserable (laughs) than they already need to be. So if there is someone that you see every day on Instagram that makes you feel miserable, just stop following them. I wouldn't say that with friends outside of social media, but I would say that in social media. Okay. Next thing is we really need to bridge the gap between our um, personal brand, if you will, and who we really believe we are. Yeah. So when I say personal brand, I mean that curated image that we put out on social media. Because the bigger the gap we feel we have between who we really are and who other people see on social media, the more miserable we are. You look at your picture, maybe you're like, wow, that looks amazing. And then you look in the mirror and your heart sinks. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mm-hmm. I also think that gap is where imposter syndrome can happen. Yes. Go on, say more, because I'd like to hear more about that. (laughs) Well, I just, I suppose I was looking into it and trying to understand more and talking to different experts. And it seems to be, you know, there's the version that we put out there about ourselves. And then there's the way we see ourselves privately. And, you know, if the gap there is too far, then you're constantly going to feel that you have to live up to the version of yourself that you put out there. So in a professional environment, for example. So if you can find ways to bring more, you know, authenticity, like real authenticity, real humanness, and, and even a bit of vulnerability in into your life to bridge, to close that gap, then you don't feel like as much of a fraud or imposter because you're not pretending to be something you're not. Yes, brilliant, brilliant. So imposter syndrome to me is something slightly different. So that's why I wanted to hear your um, 
Well, you're the expert now. I have no, 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 no. But what you just said is exactly what I meant. Yes. Okay. If you, if the world is seeing a version of you that is curated, you will always be wondering, even if people love you, yes, even if people pour on praise for who you are, there will always be part of you wondering or worrying. But if you knew the real me, you wouldn't say that. Yeah. And actually, to the point where I know people coming out of lockdown who are scared to see their friends and their loved ones because they think, well, they've only seen the curated highlight reel. They've only seen the kind of filtered pictures. They're going to think I'm doing great. They're going to think I look different to who I am. And when they see the real me, they're going to be disappointed. So this gap between what we present and who we are must be shrunk if we're going to start to feel better. And what would be amazing is if everyone did that, then actually all of our compare and despair would decrease, right? Because we wouldn't be seeing so many highlight reels. The reason I said about imposter syndrome to me being slightly different is I often think about imposter syndrome being that voice inside your head that says, um, you shouldn't be here, right? Mm -hmm. um, you don't have the skills that other people think you do, which is similar to what you're saying. But imposter syndrome to me is more like that inner critic that's actually trying to keep you safe. Yeah. It's uh, you are reaching a point in your life that is too far. You know, we're, we're kind of breaking through our own glass ceiling. We're about to exceed something we've never done before. We're about to go when, where I've never gone before in business. I'm about to do something that feels socially threatening. So our brain's like, mm, they're going to find you out. They're going to kick you off, hoping that you will then avoid the situation that it thinks will be dangerous for you. But actually that situation isn't dangerous and the imposter syndrome in that situation is normally a good sign it means you are pushing forwards you are doing something you care about and you've just got to keep going wow so interesting so you're kind of taking the things that people I and mean, myself included see as obstacles to overcome and embracing them as as something to work for you yes 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 because actually if you think about it in terms of psychology there's almost nothing that we do that isn't about survival and thriving right if we come back to anxiety and panic our species stayed alive because of anxiety right it was you know our ancestors would have been sitting around a campfire let's say um in their groups and they might have heard a rustling in the bushes and suddenly that kind of fight or flight response switched on and we, they slipped into anxiety. So everything went quiet. They started scanning the environment, thinking about anything that could happen. At the same time, their heart would have started to race. Their body would have prepared them to run or to fight. Now they were unlikely to stick around to find out whether it was a tiger. They probably ran before they, you know, run, run first, ask questions later. So that anxiety kept them alive. And it's just that you and I, we live in a time now where we don't have tigers around us, but we have other social threats, other things that make us feel anxious. So my thing is about if, if everything that we do, pretty much everything we do psychologically has a purpose and has a reason, that means if we can totally understand it, we can also use it to make our lives better. Yeah, it's it's actually so liberating when you get to that point. And I, I mean, Isn't it? it really is. And that's the goal of the book, I suppose. I, I'm interested, you mentioned in the book, you refer to this stress response as the fight, flight, freeze or fawn response. And I've never heard the fawn part and it sounds lovely. Is it lovely? So, I mean, it's brilliant. As with everything, as with everything that we do, it's brilliant. Yes. If our brain does something, it's very smart, right? Fight or flight. Great. Run for your life. Fight for your life. Survive. Brilliant. Freeze. Um, 
so very few people know about the fawn, but freeze responses where your brain assumes that the danger is so close, you won't be able to run from it or fight against it. So you totally freeze to the spot. You might've seen an animal, for example, play dead. Yes. So we freeze in the same way. Everything slows down. Our heart rate slows down. Um, we go numb in case danger, in case we do get harmed. And so that we won't, our pain threshold will be higher. Blood goes away from the surface of the skin. So that if there's an injury, we won't bleed out. It's incredibly smart, yes? And then fawn is the next smart level of brains adapt, our brains adapting, adaptions to make us survive. So fawn is where you essentially become increase, um, incredibly compliant. You essentially um, become someone who will do anything in terms of pleasing the other in order to stay safe. If you think about, um, we see this often in movies. I'm trying to think of a, a horror film or something where you see this, you know, often in a thriller or in a horror film, there'll be someone who comes in who puts someone else in danger. Let's say there's someone with a gun. Now the person who's having the gun pointed at them at first might try and run for their life. If that doesn't work, they then try and fight for their life. If that doesn't work, they totally freeze for a moment. And if that doesn't work, they tend to then start to turn to that uh, person with a gun and be like, maybe I can help you. I'll do whatever it takes. What can I do to please you? Oh, you're so smart. You're so brilliant. Maybe we can be on the same team. Yeah. yeah? So the fawn response is, an, is one of the levels of uh, survival strategy that hopes that if we can please and appease and comply with the other person, we will survive. And it, um, you and I, I'm sure you will have had this experience. It's quite normal, right? In terms of um, sometimes we'll people please in a very mild way, purely so that our friends stay friends with us. Yes. yes? <laughs> so... Um, Fight, flight, freeze, fawn has, yes, four different options, but also a, a scale within each one. So you could fawn in a small way or you could fawn in a big way where you end up trying to people please so much so that you always put your needs second. And that's when it would become more a problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So you also mentioned coping strategies that make our anxiety worse, which I think is really interesting because when you hear the idea of a coping strategy, you think latch onto that, that will, you know, be really helpful. What are the, what would you say are the, the most common things that people use to cope, but, but are kind of perpetuating the problem? Okay. So firstly, um, I totally agree that we hear coping skill and we're like, more of that, please. <laughs> So um, I just want to say that um, often the coping skills that make things worse for us don't make them worse for us in the beginning, right? So for example, let's say you feel anxious and you know, socially anxious, and you notice that if you have a drink, you feel more calm. Yes, of course. You're, yes, you're like, oh, this social lubricant really helps. The issue is if that helps and the next time you think I need to drink in order to feel good, that is where the beginning of a problem can begin, right? It started off as a coping skill, but as can sometimes take on a life of its own where you become dependent on booze to minimize your anxiety. Or for example, let's say um, you notice that taking control of your environment, making sure you're in control of everything that happens every day, minimizes your anxiety. 
then that's smart, right? Control your diary. We do know that people who feel like they have the ability to control their life, as in that they can make a difference in their life, do feel psychologically more resilient. However, if you feel anxious and you only feel better if you take control and you live in this world, which is unpredictable as we were shown in 2020, if control is your only coping strategy, when stuff goes wrong and it will, it can feel like, someone has removed your only, um, I was thinking about like up shit creek, excuse my language, without a paddle, like suddenly the paddle is gone, right? You have no way of coping. Suddenly anxiety is coursing through your body. But the biggest one in terms of anxiety, I think, is avoidance. What do you think before I dive into this? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends on the the part of your life where you're feeling anxious about. But if it's a social thing, uh, avoidance is huge. I, I would say, yeah, I definitely have been guilty of that a lot myself oh my word me too so avoidance is smart yes like if you get bitten by a snake not going back to where the snake lives is really smart (laughs) if someone hurts you upsets you harms you not seeing that person cutting them out of your life if they won't change is the smart thing to do the issue is with anxiety that when you for example Okay, I'm giving a personal example. When I was 18 and having panic attacks, I noticed that when I went into a supermarket, my anxiety came on almost instantly. My eyesight would change. My heart would start to race. Now, I started avoiding supermarkets. I mean, that's smart, right? You go there, you feel terrible. You stop going there, you don't feel terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Now, the issue is our brain, when you avoid something that makes you anxious, doesn't learn oh, that situation wasn't dangerous or I can cope. It learns we are only safe if we don't go to supermarkets and we are only safe if we don't experience anxiety, which meant that I felt more afraid of anxiety. I started avoiding supermarkets, but then that fear of anxiety popping up started to generalize and I started to avoid more and more things until my life got pretty small, actually. So... Avoidance is smart in the short term, but in the long term can cause you to fear things more than you would do if you went to the thing that scares you with the right coping skills, with the right people, with the right beliefs and tools to manage your anxiety. And if you showed your brain that even when I feel anxious, I can find a way through. Because by not avoiding, by gradually exposing yourself to the thing that scares you with the right support, you will learn not only that you can cope, but your anxiety won't be activated in such an extreme way in the future because your brain won't go, oh my word, you're in the most dangerous place in the world. Why are you here? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, God, when I think back to 2014, I my anxiety got so bad and I guess avoidance without me really being aware of it was my my coping strategy to the point that like, I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't go and buy a carton of milk. I couldn't meet a friend for coffee. And for, for a while, I had to allow myself just to be in that like super restricted comfort zone and that safe space. But I knew it wasn't like, I was like, I'm okay when I'm within, you know, this space, but that's not reassuring because I, how am I ever going to get out of it? And then you beat yourself up and then you feel like life is over. Yeah. So I'd love to, to, to ask you about, for someone listening, I mean, I get a lot of messages from people who, you know, it's not just day-to-day anxieties, like social comparison or people pleasing. It's really like, I can't go to the shop. I can't get in my car. And if if someone has, I suppose, reinforced the idea that somewhere or someplace or something or some person or some subject is is a threat, 
how would you advise that they set about re-exposing themselves and in, in a way that give, makes them feel like there's a little bit of control there? Yes, 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 yes. Well, I'm very pleased to tell you that in a manual for being human, I actually set out um, the exact steps. So the, the only appendix in the whole book, as you know, the thing that's at the end that's tacked on that's very important is there's literally a step-by-step guide on how to gradually re-expose yourself to the thing that scares you in a way that makes you feel in control. But um, let's do a little bit of that now, which is the idea that if, for example, you realize that you're avoiding something so much, it's really getting in the way of your life. You really want to basically draw a ladder on a piece of paper or some steps and write down where you're at and where you want to be. So for example, with me, it was supermarkets as an example. So not able to really leave the house, not able to go to the supermarket to wanting to be able to leave the house, wanting to go to the supermarket. And you think about what are the smallest steps that you need to take in order to get to the supermarket. So for example, for me, it was, um, actually I was so afraid that I needed to just visualize going to the supermarket before even going to the car park. So maybe the first thing is visualizing going to the supermarket. Second step is sitting outside the supermarket in a car with a friend doing breathing exercises. Maybe the next step is standing near the front door of the supermarket with a friend doing breathing exercises. Maybe the next thing is standing in the doorway. Do you see, do you see how this goes? And you'd put a time limit, right? So like two minutes five minutes. Then you build up until you're standing in the aisle with a friend. Then maybe the friend is outside, but you need to know that you have the right grounding skills. So familiarize yourself with anxiety, get the right coping skills and make a plan. Now, if your anxiety is really extreme, please get professional help. It will honestly help you so much if someone else who knows what they're talking about is with you. But Once you've drawn that ladder, so you know each little step, you plan when you're going to face each step and you only move on to the next step when you know you can do the first one. So what's fascinating about our brains, for example, is that they don't know the difference between imagined experiences and actual experiences. So for me, for example, with the supermarket, my anxiety was so overwhelming at 18 that there was no way I could go and sit in the car park of a supermarket at that point. I would have had a panic attack and I couldn't cope. So... If you visualize the place you need to go to, you visualize yourself going there, you visualize yourself breathing through your anxiety, you visualize it going well. And then if you notice that at any point your brain goes, it's going wrong, it's going wrong. Just like a video, you rewind and you start that bit again, visualizing it going well. This will give your brain your first example of having done the thing that you've been avoiding your brain will believe you've already done it, which will then make the next step much easier. So then, for example, you go and sit in the car park with your friend for two minutes and you breathe through it. You need to know that anxiety will rise and it will fall as long as you don't avoid. But like I say, if your anxiety is extreme, get professional help. When you break it down like that, it becomes far less scary and you know small little achievements and you just I remember you know feeling just so proud when I was able to go and meet someone for a coffee yes so proud yeah and to this day like when I when I do fall into the trap of thinking oh I'm not where this person is career-wise or I always find it really helps to bring myself back to the temporal comparison of thinking hold on a minute there was a time you couldn't go for a coffee there was a time you couldn't 
comfortably step outside your front door and you know you have to look at where you were and where you are now yes you use comparison to work for you so this is so great because so you will be motivated if you see someone can be yourself in a position that is behind you in some way because then you'll be able to think wow look how far I've come you will be motivated if you see someone who's slightly ahead of you that you feel like you can aspire to you will be demotivated if you compare yourself to people who you don't feel like you could achieve that should you try hard enough in this given moment so you just gave the most beautiful example of using comparison to help spur you on and move you forward. And to anyone who's had panic, who's had anxiety, who's had to change their life for any reason linked to their mental health, we all have that time that we can look back on and think, oh my word, how far have I come since then? And we need to be comparing ourselves to that, not to the people who haven't struggled or to the people we don't know about their struggles or to the people whose highlight reels we see each day. Yeah, absolutely. I need to just always remind myself of that. It's so easy to forget, you know, when you get to a point of feeling like you're managing things okay, you just, you diminish a lot of what you've been through and how far you've come. And I think that's another really common thing is that, you know, even not just anxiety, but when people are striving for success and that's Mm -hmm. the hard part, we get to the point of success and we don't know what to do with it then. (laughs) And we don't appreciate it. And then we're on to the next struggle, you know? So it's almost like we need to really learn to familiarize ourselves with those, no matter how insignificant or small they feel, especially when it comes to anxiety, how huge it is to, to overcome those little hurdles. Oh my word. Yes. I remember. So again, when I was 18, I would like I would honestly, if I left the house, I'd have to count my steps. So I'd be walking, counting to kind of keep myself in the moment. And if I'd managed to go around the block, I honestly, that that was such a win. Like building up to getting back out and about was such a win. And now I go about my life, you know, just like, la, 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 like just skipping out the front door or at least since lockdown has started to lift anyway doing things that I wouldn't have in a million years been able to even consider doing then. Um, And that is such a win. And I often do forget that too. So I think one of our brain's coping mechanisms is almost forgetting the times that were really hard. And it's not just that we need to remember that. I think that we also need to, um, I read this beautiful book by Jenny O'Dell called How to Do Nothing. Have you read it? Yes, I've read it. Oh, I love it so much. And the fact that, you know, she talks about um, the only things really in nature that continuously grow unchecked are essentially tumours and um like kind of those weed plants, you know, I don't mean weed as in marijuana. I mean, yeah. plants that, you know, that are really out of control, like the things we have to like Japanese knotweed, for example, things that suffocate other plants. Right. Yet when it comes to us as humans, we seem to think that we need to continually grow and strive and succeed in this unchecked way. So that was such a revelation for me. I was like, oh yes, the things that do that in nature, we don't think of as good. So why are we putting ourselves through this? Why aren't we taking stock of what is here? Why aren't we nurturing the things that we already have? Why are we always looking forward and thinking, "Mm, I did well, but it's not quite enough. So yeah, that's just some thoughts on what you're saying, because I would really like a, a world in which we were not only able to recognize how far we've come, but a world that values not necessarily having to always move forward oh it's just 
so necessary. I think there's such an obsession with moving forward, self-improvement. And actually, another thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, we are in a world now where there's so much talk about mental health and it's brilliant and it's positive. But I find sometimes that what, you know, with all this self-care talk and on well-being stuff like websites that I remember I used to be reading Mind Body Green every day and there'd be like 40 articles a day of like different ways to be well and things. And what was meant as, as you know, the solution really for me became part of the problem. Um, oh, yes. Like, you know, like you say, like there's a lot of nuance lacking and everything. I think that a big driver for anxiety for people now can definitely be self-care pressure. And, you know, the amount of information coming at us is overwhelming. So should we take all the self-care talk with a pinch of salt? Well, I suppose there's a, a number of answers. As always in psychology, there's never one answer. First thing is, I suppose, always take time off. Right, because I'm noticing that people are making themselves ill by trying to do all the things that are meant to make themselves better. So schedule in rest breaks from self-care and growth. Make sure that you allow times where things can just be messy because that's important so you don't burn out in self-care. The next thing is, I suppose, all of us have to be aware about why we're consuming all this information. It is one thing to be just curious about self-care and about psychology. Another thing to realize that you just haven't found what works for you yet. And another thing, this is something that happens often in anxiety. Another thing to recognize that you are consuming information as a form of reassurance seeking or another form of avoidance to coping skills that end up biting us in the bum. So for example, let's think about someone who has anxiety. Someone who has the physical symptoms of anxiety might experience a new symptom right? Something that feels scary. Maybe for example, to say their vision has changed or they've got weird kind of brain zaps. This obviously causes fear. So they go onto Google or they go onto their favorite self-help page and they read, oh, don't worry. These are normal parts of anxiety. Now, if you read that and you're like, oh, it's another thing of anxiety and you don't feel the need to check again, brilliant. However, for lots of people, what they do is they feel less anxious and their brain goes, oh, phew. The only reason I stayed safe is because I checked not because I wasn't in danger in the first place or because I can cope. So the next time a new symptom comes up, that person goes, oh, I need to check the information again. And they check again and they start off a cycle where the thing that's feeding the anxiety is this checking behavior. The fact that they haven't actually found a coping skill or a grounding skill, grounding tool that would help them say, I know that I'm safe. I can cope with whatever's going to happen. It's likely to be anxiety and I will find a way to cope on my own or with the support network I have rather than by gathering more and more information that is unfortunately only helping me in the short term. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's really important, I think, for people to check in on how they consume that content and whether it's really fueling it or, you know, maybe it's like an invisible... Yes. Is it making you feel better long-term or just short-term? <laughs> so... Oh God, it's a minefield. It really is. Dr. So is there, is there one thing you would love to leave us with in terms of the book, like why this book is different? You know, there's so many books out there, like in this sort of sphere. For me, it's, you know, it, it takes a specific kind of voice, which you have to really stand out. So what is it for you that made you want to write this book and what was needed? Okay, so um, there are lots of self-help books out there, you're right. But like I said, I suppose earlier, almost all of them focus on one topic. Yeah. This is the only book that I know of that will walk you through from your first breath. Literally, the first line is about the first breath you take when you come into the world. We'll walk you through from your first breath to present day. We'll show you all of the things that may be shaping you 
including, for example, um, your early relationships and how it shaped your attachment, how you shaped your identity in your teenage years, how the marketing and media you consume each day affects your social comparison, how um, the prejudice in society affects the stories we tell about ourselves, how the life events such as um, breakups and death of people we love affect us, and how the misinformation we have about um, our emotions, the fight or flight response, our inner critic, the coping skills we use that bite us in the bum, how all of these come together to affect how we feel moment to moment. So as well as the, the, the final part of the book is a, an arsenal of coping skills. So this is the first book that I know of at least, and we've done the research, that honestly you could read from front to back and learn almost everything you ever need to know about being human or that you can dip in and out of when something new comes up. So say, for example, you have your first panic attack or you know someone else who's had a panic attack. Or say, for example, you have your first intrusive thought. Or say, for example, your inner critic is getting too loud or your imposter syndrome is really driving you, you know, wild. Or, for example, even the apps that you use to date are undermining your confidence. This book has it all in there and you can use it either as a reference guide or as something that you keep with you that you read from front to back. And I promise you, whatever you're struggling with, the answer is in there, as is a barrage of coping skills. Okay, I'm going to need 10 copies for myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. Soph, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you. I feel so inspired mostly to take a break from self-care. So thank you for yeah. that. Take breaks, take breaks. <laughs> take a break and just to start to really think about making things work for me instead of trying to push against them. And thank you for so many fresh perspectives on things that drive anxiety for people. I know this episode is going to be hugely helpful for, for my listeners and massive congratulations on the book. I, I hope we've done it justice here. And I'm, I mean, I can't imagine anyone listening to you would not think this is a book I have to have. Um, so thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access a full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.